Hey guys, if you're new, this is Pastor Dan. He is the founding uh, pastor, founding and lead pastor of this church. And he's been ill for about nine months, 10 months, something like that. But the Lord is doing an amazing thing and he's able to be with us today. He's back. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. So you guys can text in your questions by texting uh, 775-432-7300. Did I get it right? Yep. 432-7300 and ask anything that you want and we'll get to the ones that we can. Um, so are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do How this. does it feel to be up here? I'm like a kid in a candy shop, <laughs> ready to go. That's awesome. Okay, first question. What advice would you give to young Christian adults trying to date and find a life partner in today's world? Oh, that, uh, that's an interesting question. So I would say, first of all, um, be, very, very, be very careful. Be very selective and uh, don't do missionary dating. You know, what I mean by that is thinking somehow, some way, that uh, this person that I'm dating is going to figure out Christ, I would really be very fussy and uh, because I can't tell you after 35 years so of ministry and lead pastor role, I can't tell you how many times I've dealt with people that are in marriages where you have a believer and an unbeliever and it's so frustrating because, they, because their true colors come out. So I'm just going to say be very focused, uh, be very picky, and, uh, and trust God along the way. Good. Good. Okay. I love Jesus, and I believe in him, but I struggle with what the Bible, struggle with the Bible and what it says about the gay community. I want to move closer to God, but this part has been a real challenge. Yes, that's, that is an amazing question. So let's just deal with difficult questions right off the bat, right? right. So here we go. So I would just simply say this to everyone sitting in this room. When a culture abandons the moral compass of God, then when everyone does that which is right in their own eyes, culture becomes chaotic, and that's going to be the mark of the end times because in the end times, people are going to abandon their faith in God. And so our moral compass is God himself, and God has revealed in his, in his word some very powerful and very specific things about all sorts of brokenness, not just not just the gay community, all sorts of brokenness, fornication and adultery and witchcraft and, and uh, God is our moral compass. So we have to establish that. So having said that, the truth is, is that I think the church has really done a horrible job in learning kindness and, and learning how to love people exactly where they are. That's what Jesus did. Jesus loved people right where they were. He didn't expect change the first moment that he encountered them, but he entered their life, and as a result of encountering Jesus, the reality is, is that they, they took a step closer to him and became saved, and, and uh, so you'll see that over and over again within the New Testament. So I would just simply say that uh, be very careful with abandoning the Word of God as the moral compass of your life because it, it, I, I just tell you, read the newspaper today. Read, read, you know, read the internet, just read news, and you're going to discover that all over the world there is a brokenness because our culture has abandoned the, the concepts of who God is and his moral compass for our lives. Okay, this one is pretty deep. Did you get any hunting tags this year? <laughs> yeah, that is, that's the hardest question I'm going to answer so far. 
because, uh, because of my illness, I didn't even put in, so I didn't get a tag. So can't get what you don't put in for. <laughs> That's true. Okay, if God already knows everything that will happen, why should we pray? Because there's a mystery in prayer. The reality is, is that for some reason, God has incorporated His will into our prayer life. I don't understand it. It's a mystery in the New Testament. It is. It is a mystery all through the Scripture that somehow God has taken uh, what His will is and He's prompted His church to pray about it and then, and then He answers. And the reason I think, this is my best guess, edu- you know, educated guess, is that I believe that it's because when God answers the question, when God answers the prayer, God gets the glory for it. And that is why prayer is such an important thing. It's because you and I are partners together with God Himself. And God has chosen it that way, and God, has, and God manifests Himself that way. And so prayer is a very important way to glorify God who is in heaven. Good, so good. I raised my four kids in church. Three of them got baptized and said they accepted Christ, but now as adults, they do their own thing. And one even says she doesn't believe the Bible is inspired by God, but only written by men. How do I get them back to the Lord and serving again? That is, that is a, a complicated and, and painful question. And the answer to that question is simply this, is the only thing you can do is live the kind of life that Christ would intend for your life. When you live with kindness and gentleness and all the fruits of the Spirit in your life, when you live with the love of Christ in your life, uh, that's contagious. And, and the bottom line is, is that the world, this is what many people will discover, uh, hopefully before it's too late, is that the world literally has nothing to offer you and I. Absolutely nothing. So you go out and you get wounded and you get bruised and, and oftentimes what I've discovered in my own life, in my journey, is that a lot of those kids that got baptized as kids and, and grew up and went their own way, eventually a good portion of them find their way back to the church because they recognize that what's out there doesn't satisfy the soul. And so they go out and experience it. They try to figure out how to get satisfaction and happiness and in the end they discover that the world is broken and painful and hurtful and then they realize that the only one that truly the only one that can bring grace and mercy and joy into your life is God himself and they find their way then back to the church when that happens good who do you know or how do you know that God is sovereign and if he is how do we have free will Okay, so first of all, let me start with the end question there. There is no such thing as free will. Okay, let me just say that out loud as a theologian. And the reason I say that is because if you had free will, you could jump and touch that ceiling right now. You get out of your seat, jump, because you're, if you have free will, you could do anything you want to do. So we have choice. Let's talk, let's talk about the fact that you and I have choice. So uh, in that process, so read the question to me again because I want to answer it specifically. Oh, well, I don't know where it went. Um, how do you... If you know that oh, God sovereign. is sovereign, how do you, how can you have free will? Something like that. So God has, again, this, this mystery of God is that somehow he wraps his will into our choices. And our choices sometimes lead us down wrong paths. But, you know, in the end, Romans, Romans says that all things work together for the good that to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So in the end, God somehow wraps even your bad choices into his sovereign will for your life. I look back over my life and I've made some horrible choices in life. And I, I look back and sometimes I think, God, how could you use a guy like me who has made so many 
devastating and difficult and hurtful choices for other people. And, uh, and yet God in his grace and mercy chose to call me into ministry and chose to allow me to have the grace to, to stand before people and speak the word of God. Uh, so in the end, in the end, it's a mystery, and you have to accept the mystery. You don't take, it's two sides of a coin. It's God's will, God's sovereignty, and yet it's God's, it's God's in, incorporating our choice into that process. It's good. This one's good. I'm moving away for college, and I'm very nervous. Do you have any advice? Yeah, I do. I do have some nervous. <laughs> Buy low, sell high. That's, uh, no, I, I, no I'm, not, I, I'm, not, I'm not serious there. So here's the thing. Uh, I would say if you're moving away to college, the very first priority of your life, listen to me carefully, the very first priority of your life is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So in the end, I would say seeking first the kingdom of God means to connect with people spiritually. So wherever you're at, whatever college you're at, figure out on campus, off campus, find a church, find Christians on, on campus and connect with those people because you want to seek first the kingdom of God. And you need a community of people around you to be able to do that. And by being in a community, your fear will go away and uh, God will do great things in your life and it'll be a great experience. College was one of the best uh, 10 years of my life. <laughs> and, uh, but the reality for you is, is that you just jump in, uh, but make sure you seek first the kingdom of God. That's my advice to you. That's good. Okay, two-part question. Can you tell us about the dinosaurs? What about the dinosaurs? I can. Okay. Do so you want me to start it. there? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I have, so really, really we're talking about creation here, right? So where did God create dinosaurs and where'd they go? And, and that's really a great question for uh, a lot of people smarter than me. But let me tell you, as a, just a country boy from Fallon, what I think. So here we go. So I believe that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 are very telling about creation. So let me tell you my minority view of creation, and you can judge whether or not you like it or don't like it. You can throw tomatoes at me. I don't care. Uh, we're still going to be friends at the end, right? So here's my view of creation. I believe that God created the earth, heavens and the earth, and there was a judgment that was on the earth. Now, why do I believe that? Because in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, and the earth became formless and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. So you see that there's this disconnect between verse 1 and verse 2 in creation. And there's a key Hebrew word in that section of Scripture. And uh, normally in Hebrew, this is, you know, I, I don't want to bore you with Hebrew, but just listen to this. Normally in Hebrew, there's no to-be verbs. They're just inserted. They're just apply, implied. So when there's a word that's inserted, then you take note. So in Genesis 1-2, the word hayah, uh, the Hebrew hayah. word hayah, that's it, hayah. Uh, that's how I remembered it, actually. Um, the word hayah is inserted there. And the word hayah is almost always translated in every other place in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, where Hebrew is written. It's almost always translated became. So let's put that verse in there. And the earth became formless and void and darkness was upon the earth so those words are those words that are used in that verse are words of judgment so some form of judgment i'm just looking at the syntax of the bible some form of judgment happened there was a creation and then there was a, a judgment and a recreation now how does that have anything to do with dinosaurs i believe that 
The reason is, is that it solves the age of the earth. It solves a lot of scientific issues, at least for my life. And it, it suggests that there are things that in that former creation that the remains are still there. There was a judgment, so the remains are still there. So I think that's where we find a lot of different things that we see and you know, read about dinosaurs, this kind of things. I think we see their fossils, we see their bones, and we think, how could they be a million years old? How could they be five million years old? I believe it's because there was a judgment, a creation, a judgment, and a recreation. So oh, smoke good. that in your pipe sometime. Yeah, that's good. Be good. Wow. Okay, how do you balance having so many people to pray for and also wanting to pray for yourself? Well, was there a second half to that That's first question? That's the second half to Okay, that so question. go ahead and They're say that again. They're not related. Okay. Okay. So how do you balance having so many people to pray for and also wanting to pray for yourself? Well, I would simply say that if prayer is a very important thing, a very sacred thing, and I think we're very guilty of when someone comes up and asks us to pray, I think we're very guilty of saying, sure, I'll pray for you, and not doing it. So I think we need to become students of Jesus, and I think we need to become students of how he prayed, and I think we need to become students of learning, learning the sovereignty of God and learning, learning how to put other people's needs in front of your own. So oftentimes, we become very anthropocentric, means, meaning that, that I, you know, it's all about me, and I think God has placed people into our life to keep us from that very thing so that when people come up to and ask us for prayer, we can actually put ourselves aside for a moment and then begin to really enter in and not just say you're gonna pray for somebody, but actually take their project on and pray for them every day. Prayer is such an important part of our Christian life. And yet the average Christian prays less than five minutes a day and wonders why they have less than five minutes a day of power in their life. So I'm just gonna say, Put others' needs in front of your own. That's the priority in Scripture. Look at other people as more important than yourself. That's what Philippians says, and that's the, that seems to be the balance of Scripture. That doesn't mean you can't pray for yourself, but it does mean that it puts life in perspective. And by the way, what's interesting to me, and especially in my illness, I mean, I, I've had a really rough go of it for the last 10 months, but here's what I've learned. There are people that have had far worse time than me and there are people all around the country that have reached out to me and asked me to pray for them. And the truth is, is that it encourages me to know that, you know, it, gives, it puts life in perspective for you personally and encourages me to know that, they, you know, that they, are, they are asking me for prayer. And so it's really, it's really a dynamic thing. I remember years ago when I was going through something hard and you prayed for me every day for long years, at least months. Um, so well, it's five, five minutes, but that's, thank you for that. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, if you could go back in time and tell yourself one thing, what would it be and why? It depends on how far back in time. Okay. If I could go back into my high school years, I would say, hey, dude, receive Jesus Christ right now because your life's going to be a mess without it, without him. So that would be, that would be my first response. But if I could go back into my early Christian life and I could change anything and I could give advice to myself. I would give this advice, I would say, uh, spend as much time in your life as you can meditating and thinking about the Scripture, because as I look back on that life, what has gotten me through the time that I've got through right now, you know, the reason I'm sitting in this chair today and able to look, to you, look at you face to face is because I had the Word of God cemented in my life, and I wish that I had even more than that, that's what I would say to myself, is ground yourself deeply in God's love, in His grace, in His mercy, and in His Word. 
why is it called God-fearing? If God is omnipotent and all-loving, why are we to be afraid of him? So the word fear in both the Old Testament and New Testament probably has a different idea than what you would think about when you think about fear. Fear really has the idea behind it as, in relationship to our emotion as to having a, a sense of, of reverence for God. It is not a phobia. God is not saying let's be, phob you know, be phobic about God, about him. He's telling us that we should approach him with a sense of awesomeness with a sense of knowing this isn't just my, the buddy upstairs. This is the God that created and spoke the worlds into existence. This is the God who saved me. This is the God who, who changes lives. So as I approach God, fear, the fear of God, then the scripture says, is the beginning of wisdom. In fact, I don't think you can know the love of Christ until you know the fear of God in the sense that I just described it. I think once you understand the fear of God, then you would then you would understand how much God really loves you. In fact, as an unbeliever, if you're, if you're here today and you, are, you, you have never crossed that line of faith, you're not an unbeliever, but you've never crossed the line of faith, and uh, where would fear come into your life? The scripture says this, uh, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So run to God, run to him. It's the beginning of wisdom, and it is the only thing that will make sense in your life as you approach God. What did you do to persevere in your faith through times of struggle through the last nine months? Um, a lot of things. I, I meditate on scripture every day. I remind myself of truth every day. I don't let my emotions get wrapped. One, one of the questions last service was, you know, how do, you know, when you get your emotions tangled up, how does that work? And so I'm just going to say, you've got to be centered on the Word of God. You've got to be centered on the Word of God, and you can't let emotions deceive you. So every day, I'd ask myself this question. Listen to it very carefully, because I know right now you are believing some lies. I know that without any doubt. The question that I ask myself every day is, what lies am I believing? About my health, about my future, about God, about my family, what lies am I believing? And I think that was a crucial piece of the puzzle of really being to identify what those lies are and then being able to counteract those lies with the truth of God's word and knowing that, and the, the other thing that's got me through is that I know, I know my future. I know in the end that there's the hope of the resurrection and I know that God's word is true and I am gonna stand face to face with God and this, this time in this life is but a moment. It's like blink your eye. I mean, like I blink my eye and uh, the truth is, is that I looked in the mirror yesterday and I'm going, man, you're old. Because it seems like last time I looked in the mirror, I was young. And uh, so I blinked and there life went, and so I'm just gonna say, life goes so, so fast that you need to make sure that you're focused on God's eternity because that's the most important thing you can focus on. And that's what helped me get through some of the crises in my life. What's the difference between the rapture and the second coming? Okay, that's a good question. So, Jesus comes back in two phases. So, first phase is what is called the harpazo. We call it the rapture. The, Hebrew, the Greek word is harpazo. And so, it is the snatching away. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Jesus comes back and he rescues his people from the, the ter terrible wrath that's coming upon the planet. So, that's the rapture. It's the coming 
of Jesus for his bride, and it's to deliver them from the wrath to come. So that's the rapture. Then what we see in Scripture is that Jesus comes back, and, and that's in a twinkle of an eye, the first thing that I described. When he comes back the second time, the Bible says, every eye shall see him, every eye shall see him, and all the world, the whole world will mourn because of him. So that's when he comes back the second time. He's not coming back in a happy sense to, you know, just bless everybody. He's coming back the second time to make war with his planet and to conquer this planet and to take back what, is rightly, what rightly belongs to him. And the book of Revelation describes that for us. And it's seen in seven, and it's seen this scroll, which is the title deed of the earth. Seven seals are sealing this scroll. And when the seventh seal is broken, that's the coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, he's coming to make war on the planet. And he's coming to, to, to subject the nations to himself. And he r- rules on this planet for a thousand years. And I won't tell you the rest of the story, maybe another time, but it's a beautiful story. It is. Is anybody grateful that we have this man who can answer a question like that, like that? It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. What does it mean to practice the presence of the Holy Spirit, and what are some practical, practical steps to do that? Well, one of the things that I do, I can't tell you how you should do it. One of the things that I do is I use an, I use an app uh, called Encounter. And it's an app that I found very helpful. It just takes you about 15 minutes every day. It sets my day. I begin to think about the presence of God. It, they take you on a journey together, looking at Scripture, looking, getting you to think about certain things in your life. So that's how I practice. I start my day by trying to meditate in some way, some, some, somehow. I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the vast majority of us in this room, the alarm clock goes off, we jump up, and we're on a million miles an hour for the rest of the day. And I'm just gonna say, uh, it's hard to practice God when you live a fast lifestyle like that. So you have to intentionalize your life. You have to figure out ways to have moments in your life where you slow it down. Early in the morning, midday, early afternoon, where you just take a break from what you're doing and you focus in on God and really think about the things that God has done for you. I think one of the greatest ways to do that is through the, through the discipline of gratitude. Gratitude is amazing. It's life-changing, and you should, be, you should practice gratitude because by practicing gratitude, you really are practicing the presence of God. So what do you mean by practicing gratitude? I think in the world that we live in, uh, what is natural to us is to be a grumbler, right? Anybody here a grumbler? Besides your wife and my husband, I'm just saying... Anybody else here a grumbler? I, I think we go through life grumbling, we complain, we, we look at life, we look at life and go, you know, look at all the wrong things. So I think practicing gratitude means that I discipline myself to think about the things that God has done for me, not the things he hasn't done for me. That's practicing gratitude. That's good. Let's talk about sin. Oh, let's do. Okay. All right. Although Jesus saved us from our sin, how do we keep ourselves from being burdened from the sins that we'll make in the future? How do we keep burdened from in the future? How do we keep ourselves from being burdened knowing that we'll sin in the future or even sin when you get off the stage? Yeah, that is great. Whatever. That's, a, that's a good, another good question. And I, I think the answer to that question is that, is that you've got to understand the efficacy of the blood of Christ. So what I mean by that is that, let me ask you this question. You answer it for yourself. Is the blood of Jesus Christ sufficient to cover all of my sins? Is, it, is that true? Amen? Is it true? All of them? So then I don't have to have shame. I don't have to have fear. 
I don't have to fear the future because I know that I'm going to sin, but God has already covered me. When he died on the cross, all my sins to him were future. And so his, when he said it was finished, I don't think he was joking. I think the payment was made in full, and when he, when he went into heaven and applied the, his blood in the own, his, on the mercy seat in heaven, it made the sacrifice complete, and I, and I just think that I just walk in that truth every day, that his blood is sufficient for me, and that as I think about that, as I trust in that, it takes away shame and anger and resentment, it takes away fear, it takes away all those things. To walk in the presence of God's atoning blood is just an amazing thing to do. Yeah, isn't that true? So we're about to do something that will uh, be a beautiful picture of that. But before we do that, would you just tell us about the day that you got baptized? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So my wife and I got saved together, 1977, February 13th to be exact, that exact date. And uh, we uh, weren't looking for God. God came and found us, and we both got saved and it was a miraculous salvation. I mean, I was long-haired hippie guy, and, uh, and I was all into myself, and, you know, and, and I was in the middle of college, and, and I was an ATO at the University of Nevada, and you know, I was practiced that lifestyle, and God, in the middle of all that, saved my wife and I together. And uh, what I didn't know about salvation then, but what I know now, is that what happened in that day, February 13th, 1977, what happened in that day is that Christ took my life. I was buried with him in his death, and I was raised together in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what happened February 13th, 1977. Now to answer your question. So about, we were meeting at the, the church I was attending, we were meeting at the seventh day, uh, not the seventh day, we were meeting at the American Legion Hall uh, over near the university, and we didn't have a baptismal place, so my baptism happened in a little church out in Sparks. I never forget it. I was scared to death. It was frightening. I mean, I've preached to thousands today, but the reality is, is that moment I walked into that baptistry trembling. And uh, so what happened to me that day is that I expressed outwardly what had already taken place inwardly. I'd already been buried with Christ. That's my new identity. I'd already been raised together in newness of life. That's my identity. Buried and raised together. So baptism was an expression of that. So when I went into those waters, my wife and I went in together and we were baptized together. They had to hold her down a, quite a bit longer because, you know, she had more sin in her life than me. And, and uh, you know, so, that, but she survived. She survived and it was great. And, uh, but, you know, baptism then became such a beautiful thing. And I, I was so afraid going in. But when I came out of that water, there was such, it was like a thousand pound weight was lifted off my back. It was a beautiful thing. And I, I look back and I think, why was I so scared of something so beautiful? It was a beautiful moment in my wife's life, in my life. And, and we've kind of walked together in this journey uh, in our salvation experience. It's been great. Yeah, that's so cool. Okay, so what would you say to the people in this room who uh, haven't signed up yet? but might be thinking about getting baptized, what, what does that entail? I would say, first of all, I double dog dare you to get out of that seat. I double dog dare you to get out of that seat and come down here, go, actually go in the back first, get your clothes, and uh, it's not too late. It is a, it's, it's, you know, I don't care if your heart's pounding right now. Uh, if everybody's heart is pounding when they get baptized. Yeah. 
And uh, so just have the courage to step out and really do it because it will be a significant, powerful moment in your life that I promise you a money-back guarantee here. Listen to me carefully. It's a day. Today will be a day you'll never forget if you come forward and get baptized. A day you'll never forget. So just do it. And just a reminder, does baptism save you? That, yeah, that, I probably yeah. should have said that right up front. Huh? Thanks for correcting yeah. me, Karen. So first of all, let me just say, you don't come forward to get baptized to be saved. You come forward because you have already been buried and raised together. You're expressing, uh, the, you're expressing in an outward way the inward reality of your salvation. So you get saved first. You believe on Jesus. He buries you, raises you to new life, and then you come into these waters and you express that to everybody around you and they clap and holler and scream and, and celebrate with you. It again is one of the most beautiful things that you'll do in your entire life. Hey, it's been fun. We'll see you yeah. around. Thanks, Pastor Dan.